But um, just to say, uh, this Sunday and next Sunday, we're going to be starting a kind of a little two-parter. And uh, I felt very strongly about this, and Nat kind of provoked me a little bit as well about it. And so I thought, well, okay, we'll, we'll do this two-parter. And uh, if you want to know what the two-parter is about, well, the title of it really is something quite sort of small and unambitious, which is the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, I just felt we wanted to begin to address this again, because uh, I don't know about you, the bottom line for me is that I have always loved and longed to see more of God's presence in his church and that's the bottom line and a group of us were praying out the back earlier today and we're praying for more of the presence of God and uh, that's really what these two Sundays are about I am desperate for more I am passionate for more and I'm praying for more of God to be amongst us and revealing his presence and power and so these Sundays are to try and convey something of that passion, really. That's what these Sundays, these two Sundays are about. And I guess today, this first part is really looking, in terms of theology, really, theologically, why we should be passionate to see more of his presence among us. It's all very well having a desire, but actually I want to know biblically why I should be expecting more. I really do, and, and so some of what I share today I know you would have heard before because I guess over the long haul I've always had a desire to see more of his presence amongst us and so we've addressed it and talked about it occasionally. So some of this you would have heard maybe, but nevertheless I felt I wanted to just relay, relay some biblical foundations for us this Sunday. And to do that I want to talk from Acts chapter, Acts chapter 2. So if you've got your Bibles, you might like to turn to Acts 2. Um, but I'm immediately where I'm at a slight disadvantage here because the minute you talk about the Spirit and then you say you're going to turn to Acts 2, I know the temptation for some here will be to say, oh, that, oh, okay, the coming of the Spirit, Pentecost, we know all about that. And we've heard umpteen sermons in the past about the second chapter of Acts and the coming of the Spirit. And, and I understand that. Um, but I think that's unfortunate too. I think it's unfortunate because I think Acts 2, it, it's such a well-known chapter, we've almost kind of lost its power and its implications for us. And actually it struck me a while ago, you know, Acts 2 is a little bit like the national anthem. You know, we, we, we're brought up with the national anthem, we're taught it at school, or many of us have been, we, we sing it at various ceremonies and places, but you can almost know it so well you forget what the words are actually saying. Don't you find that? In fact, it struck me a while ago that uh, this really came home to me when uh, uh, I was at uh, the Westpac Stadium watching the All Blacks play Australia, which was also always a great event, especially great because they beat the Aussies. Um, but there we were at the Westpac and, and it was amazing because there were just a sea of black, 30 odd thousand people of All Blacks supporters and I was one of them. And, uh, and just before the thing started, I was aware that across the aisle and a few rows down were some Aussies, about 20 of them, 20 Australians, 20 or so Australians, all decked out in green and gold, and, and they're obviously drunk a bit too much by then. So they were rowdy, and, uh, and the, the game hadn't started yet. But of course, you have the national anthems. And so I remember, of course, we were off to stand, and we sing Advance Australia Fair, and, and they were all bellowing out, these 25 Aussies, bellowing out, shouting at the 30,000 All Black fans, Advance Australia Fair. And so it meant that when it came to our turn, standing up to sing our national anthem, it was like 30,000 people sang it at these guys down here. And uh, it was strange because, you know, there's that line, in the bonds of love we meet. 
but our tone wasn't love. It was, we're going to kill you. We're going to kill you. That was the tone. And it occurred to me again how we can lose the content of what we sing. And that can be a little bit like Acts chapter 2. You know, we know it so well that sometimes we don't really know it at all anymore. And we miss out on something that I believe if we could get a handle on would, would blow us away, would, would change our lives, and would bring our church into a whole new expectation and experience of God. And so even today, I guess, my, my heart is, is that we try and recover something of what is truly going on in Acts 2 with the church in mind. And so I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to help us and to speak to us and to open our hearts and change us. So please pray with me. Hallelujah. Father, I want to thank you so much for already being here. Oh, wonderful, wonderful to sing your praises this morning. It's a privilege that we come. We thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit. And I pray that even now you would rest upon us in power. Lord, I'm asking for the power of your presence with us even now. As we look at this event in history, I say, please come, Holy Spirit, and rest on us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, what we're going to do is going to just read a small portion of this amazing event. And um, just to put it in its context, all right, you know, Acts 2, there's a wind that blows into the room. The, the church, the young church is in the upper the, the room up there and they're praying and the Spirit comes. And there's tongues as of fire, it says, that rests on each one of them and they begin to speak in other tongues. And then the Spirit seems to flush them out of the building upstairs onto the streets of Jerusalem and into Solomon's colonnade where there are hundreds and thousands of other Jews already gathered there and they're drawn to what's going on. And they're asking, what is this? What's going on with this group of people? And Peter replies. So it says, then Peter stood up and raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both women and men, I'll, I'll pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Wow. Amazing verses. And if we truly got hold of them, I know they would change us. But to get across what's going on in this chapter, chapter 2 of Acts, I actually need to turn you to another time in the history of Israel from the Old Testament. A time that I would argue is the most terrible moment in all of their history. All right, so we're going to go back to the most 
terrible moment in the history of Israel in the Old Testament, which is uh, saying something because you could pick several times, actually, because their history, there are a number of moments which are just awful in the history of Israel. I mean, you could, you could mention back in Exodus, you know, the, 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 the male children that are born, that, that under Pharaoh they were going to be slaughtered. That was a bad time in their history. In fact, you could mention the slavery of the Jews in Exodus. You could mention other times too. You could talk about the period of the judges and all the instability and chaos that was part of that. Or you could talk about the splitting of the kingdom of Israel. That was a bad moment in history into the north and southern kingdom. Or you could talk about the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel. That was a terrible moment. Or you could talk about the destruction of the southern kingdom of the Jews and their exile into Babylon, and, and maybe the destruction of Jerusalem, and the burning down of the temple. They are terrible moments in the history of Israel. You could pick any one of those and they'd be right up there. But I want to put it to you today that there is a worse moment than all of those. Even worse than that. And the irony is that no one is even aware that this terrible event is happening except for one man. Just one man who is a prophet. Oops. And there is Ezekiel the prophet. And Ezekiel is already in exile and he's in prayer. And God shows him, a, a vision comes to the man and he is, is shown what's going, back, what's going on back in Israel. And what it says is this, in Ezekiel 10, it says this. Ezekiel sees this in Jerusalem. Then the glory of the Lord rose from above the cherubim and moved to the threshold of the temple. Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple. That's it. That's the worst moment in Old Testament history, I put it to you. When God just quietly withdraws from among his people and leaves them to it. He departs and leaves his people. As to why he leaves, well, we know Israel's sin and rebellion had got so bad that it reached a point when God finally said, enough, I'm leaving you. And so he left. And on that day, no one saw it happen apart from one man. The glory or the presence of the Lord rose and quietly left the temple. And you've got to understand, the departure of God from off his people like this is, is, is massive. It's terrible because, of course, God being among his people is the highest plan of God for his people, isn't it? That was always his aim, God to be among his people. You can see it right back in the Garden of Eden when he creates Adam and Eve. I mean, he creates them and then he doesn't just go away and create somewhere else and forget about them. No, it says he walks with them in the garden. That's what we were made for, fellowship with God. That's what we were made for. And that's really interesting because even when, when sin eventually comes in and mankind is, is, is cut off from the presence of God, God doesn't leave it there. He then establishes a way to continue to be among them. So they can't come back into the garden. So then what does God do? He goes out to them. And, and that's what the tabernacle and the temple and the sacrificial system are all about. All right? It's God coming amongst his people. It's enabling him to be with them without wiping them out by his holiness and their sin. That's what the tabernacle is all about. And so in the tabernacle, 
and later on in the temple. What you've got is a little room hidden away at the back and no one is allowed to go in there called the Most Holy Place. And in that little room is a box called the Ark and on top of that Ark is the presence of God. The, the presence, the observable presence of God. Now, it's not all of God, of course, because he fills all things and is beyond. But in terms of quality, in terms of essence and intensity, it's God himself in all of his holiness and glory. But of course, he's, he's hidden away. He's hidden away so no one can come near him because if they come near, they will die. So they can't actually approach. And I often imagine what it must have been like to have God among a people like that. It must have been quite stressful, if you think about it, to have God in such power. I remember as a young child, really, maybe a 10-year-old or a 9-year-old, and uh, we lived close by one of those big kind of power power lines, big sort of power poles, those huge great things that you see sort of marching across the countryside. You know, it's massive transformers, a massive, about you know, 80 feet high. And you see them around the countryside, don't you? And I remember we lived not far from one as a boy. And of course, all around the feet of these towers are signs up saying, danger, keep out, stay away. And of course, to a young boy, that's the first thing. It's like, oh, we must go there then. And it's like, welcome, welcome. And so I still remember me and a few of my friends, we'd kind of creep up to the fence or the kind of gate, and you'd hear the hum. You, know, you can hear the hum, can't you? And we were suddenly aware that we were in the presence of incredible power. And of course, we actually thought that if we touched the leg of the transformer, the tower, we would die. And so, of course, as a young boy, you're getting straw out, long bits of straw, and you're trying to lean over to touch the, touch the leg. It's like we're so aware of the, the sense of fear. Something powerful is here. I wonder if that was a bit like how it felt in the camp of Israel at times. You know, if you're outside of that tabernacle kicking a football around and the ball went over the fence, you wouldn't go in and get the ball. There was a sense of the awesome presence of God there. And certainly there are moments when God had to remind his people not to mess about with his presence. And in Leviticus 10, we read about Aaron's sons who start messing around with the presence of God. And it says this, Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu took their senses, put fire in them and added incense and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. And Moses then said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honoured. And you've got that famous line, and Aaron remains silent. Have you ever thought about that? He's just seen his boys die before his eyes. And yet he remains silent because he knows what Moses has said is true. The holy presence of God could be a terrifying thing. Now, of course, the point of having God among his people actually was to care for them and to bless them and guide them and protect them. And there were other times when to have God among them must have been the most amazing experience. I remember in 2 Chronicles when, when Solomon dedicates the newly built temple of God and it says this, it says this, 
that on that day, accompanied by trumpets, cymbals and other instruments, the singers raised their voices and praised to the Lord and sang, He is good, his love endures forever. Then the temple of the Lord was filled with the cloud and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Man, that must have been amazing. Can you imagine? I, I sometimes in an idle moment think about what it would be like for these things to happen today. Can you imagine this morning if the glory of the Lord came amongst us like he did then? There'd be smoke filling Partica, this cloud. There's the musicians falling into their instruments. Noah falling into his drums. There'd be seats falling backwards and scattering. Folks, we'd all be on our faces, wouldn't we? And you have to see that the presence of God among them like this, which was a huge privilege, is what made them the people of God in the first place. It was the thing that marked them out from all other people. So Moses says in Exodus 33, he says to God, what else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth but your presence? I love what Gordon Fee says. Gordon Fee says this, great scholar, he says this, whatever else the people of Israel understood themselves to be the people of the presence, the people among whom the eternal God had chosen to dwell on earth. And get this, more even than the law or other identity markers such as circumcision, food laws and Sabbath observance, God's presence with Israel distinguished them as his people. More than the law, more than circumcision, it was the presence that made them stand out and made them different. And so can you see, to have a day come when God says, enough, I'm getting out of here, I'm departing, it was terrible. It was, it was, it was, it was dreadful. It's catastrophic. It's, it's terrible. And no one sees them leave. Although people soon afterwards see the effects of it. Because, of course, soon after that event, the Babylonians come in. They, they destroy Jerusalem. They destroy the temple. And they send the people of God into exile. Terrible. And the thing is this. And this is the point. Here's the thing. God never came back. He left and he never returned. Now, no, the, the history of the Old Testament doesn't end. It carries on. And, and yes, God continued to look after his people, but his presence never returns. Even when the exiles come back and prophets were raised up and a temple was rebuilt, it's just that God never came back and filled the temple. And in fact, very soon after that, the people start going off track again. And so towards the end of the Old Testament, they get more and more distracted and they start cutting corners. So by the time of Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, it's already going downhill fast. And the Old Testament ends on a pretty low note. And God hasn't returned. And four centuries roll by. Four centuries. And although politically great things happen, spiritually it's like God is absent. There's silence from heaven for four centuries. That's like from our day back to Shakespeare. Heaven is silent. Nothing's heard from God. He's absent. 
until one day we read, God sends the angel Gabriel to a town in Galilee to a virgin pledged to be married to a man. And again, it's so quiet and so low-key and no one knows what's going on, but what's happening is that the wheels of heaven are beginning to turn again after four long centuries. And suddenly God's Son himself appears on the earth. Jesus Emmanuel, God with us, God is back on the earth again. And he's walking the roads of ancient Israel. It's massive. But look, you've got to understand, Jesus' coming is not an end in itself. Even his death is not an end in itself. It's a means. As Jesus hangs there on the cross and takes our sin and the punishment for our sin, the way is open for God to dwell amongst mankind again. And so as Jesus dies, the curtain is torn in two, and it's almost like God is saying, the way is now open, I'm coming back. That's what's happening. And guys, I want to argue strongly that the day of Pentecost, the second chapter of Acts, is the return. It is God moving back in amongst his people. That's Acts chapter 2. It's the coming of the Spirit. Again, just to quote Gordon Fee, he simply says this, the coming of the Spirit marked the return of the lost presence of God. And that's what Pentecost is. But of course, this time the coming of God is not like it was in the Old Testament. Back then the presence of God was locked away in a little room, hidden away, but not anymore, because Jesus has dealt with our sin. God is amongst us, not hidden away. Hallelujah. Tim Keller, I love what he says about this. He says this. The same divine glory that would have been fatal to Moses on contact now comes into the hearts of those pardoned by Christ. We can have hearts to praise, sing and pray to a God with a joy and reality that neither David nor John the Baptist could know. God will not merely build us a house he will make us his house. He will fill us with his presence, beauty, and glory. Hallelujah. That is the coming of the Spirit. That's what's going on in Acts 2. It's God coming back among his people. And you see, it's massive because it's into that context that the church is born. It's then, because of course it's the church, the gathered community that becomes the temple of God on earth. And Paul's very aware of this because he says in Ephesians 2, he says, you are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And he says to the Corinthian church, which was a struggling church, he says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? The same divine glory that would have been fatal to Moses is amongst you. That's what Paul is saying. And can you see that's so different from, from Zechariah or Nehemiah's day? Because back then they rebuilt the temple but it remained empty. Now we, the church, are the temple and we are to be full. That's the difference. And that's why I have a very high view of the local church. Because it's called to be nothing less than the house of God. It's the stairway to heaven. It's the colony of glory where people encounter the presence of God. And you see, I don't know about you, but that would be my story. 
that would be my story. I know I've told the story many times before, but I came from a very unchurched background, and as a teenager, uh, totally unsaved, totally pagan, I walked into a church quite similar to this, and I and they began the, the very first song, and as they began to sing that first song, all I can say is I encountered the presence of God, and I gave my life to the Lord instantly. And as I've said before, pathetically easily. And I wish I put up more of a fight. But I was saved because I encountered the presence of God. And folks, that's our calling to be a church like that. Theologically, biblically, this is the truth. And so the next important question is, well, okay, hear what you're saying, Pete, in the light of all this. How do we respond to this as a church? Well, there are a couple of obvious ways I'd like to put out there. Number one. First thing is this, we recognize there is more for us of God's presence than this. Amen. There is more. You know, it's so easy for us, I think, to casually tick the box. We are a charismatic church. We are a spirit-filled church. And we can say that because, well, it's our history. It's where we've come from. It's what we've talked about in the past. And we, and we speak in tongues. And, and yeah, we come up to the microphone and we bring a prophecy. Or we pray for the sick. And so, and so therefore we are a charismatic. We are a New Testament church. But listen, can I just suggest we don't claim that so casually? See, the danger is that if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we can read our present experience such as it is, back into the New Testament and claim we're doing what they were. You know, I've had people say to me, we're an Acts 2.42 church. Ever heard that expression before? I've been to a church. I remember them saying to me, we're an Acts 2.42 church. And I found myself saying, really? Wow. Are you aware of what Acts 2.42 says? It's amazing. Here's a little snippet of it here. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Wow. Can I just say, Acts 2.42 is not simply an amped up version of what we do on a good Sunday. It's not. It's talking about a much deeper experience of the Spirit. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said this, You cannot fully understand the New Testament unless you first appreciate that the book of Acts was written in the backdrop of the greatest outpouring of the Spirit. Folks, that's massive. It, it talks about awe. Talks about wonders and miracles. Talks about people being added daily. This is what it looks like to have God fully back amongst his people. Wow. I had someone many years ago now, we were meeting over in Paramatta School at the time, and I still remember sitting outside watching a, a lady who I'd never met before running across the car park. And I remember her shouting out to me, Are you a charismatic church? And, uh, and I still remember being forced to shout back, it depends. <laughs> she said, on what? I said, well, compared to where you've come from, maybe. But compared to the New Testament where God wants to take us, maybe not fully yet, but we're on the way. And I think that would be true. Look, we've had wonderful touches and glimpses and breakthroughs in God. Make no mistake. 
Precious, precious times are wonderful. But you see, I know from my reading of the Bible, there is more, more of what it means to have God's presence amongst his people, isn't there? There is more. And I don't know about you, but, but I long for awe to be experienced amongst us. You know, a few verses on from this, people will die in the, in the church. People will die. Now, I'm not wanting that. No, I'm not wanting that. It makes Sundays more interesting, though, wouldn't it? Who's going to drop today? Or what happened at church today? Well, so and so won't be coming back with us anymore because they didn't make it through the worship. And um, I mean, I don't know, but but awe. And there have been times when we've sensed His awe, haven't we? Times when God has been so near, and we felt, God, you're here with us. I still remember moments of, of great awe that I've sensed God amongst his people. I remember years ago, some of you may even have been there, we had a, a, a kind of a Bible camp back in England that some of us would have gone to. It was called Stonely. But even before then, was another Bible week before that. And thousands of us would meet in a big tent, huge tent, 3,000 people in this massive marquee. And we'd worship and we'd hear great preaching. And I still remember on one particular night hearing a guy preaching on the holiness of God. And this big tent had three big timber pillars, massive, unshakable pillars holding up this massive tent. And I still remember that night hearing this guy preaching on the holiness of God. And there came a moment, and it was totally still outside. But there came a, a moment where you sense God in the place. And then these pillars began to shake. The sense of vibration. You could hear them vibrating. And all I can remember thinking is that the hairs on the back of my neck went up. And I was suddenly aware that God was in this place. I long for that again, don't you? Don't you long for that? Now, I praise God for what we see, but there's far more of his presence that we're called to experience. So, so guys, what do we do? What do we do? Well, I tell you what we do. We pray. We pray knowing what God has called us to and then seeking his face for it. I love Isaiah 62. I have posted watchmen on your walls, Jerusalem, and they'll never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest and give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. What do we do? We give ourselves no rest and we give him no rest until we see these things, the church, Jerusalem, the people of God being the praise of the whole earth once again. That's why I love the prayer meeting. In fact, actually a group, a group of us have started to pray before the meeting begins on a Sunday. We meet at 9.15, out the back in the kitchen if you want to come, and we pray, God, come. Come among us. And I love the prayer meeting. And so we don't stay content with what we've experienced. We press in for more. So that's one thing we do. And then the second thing we do, and I'll close with this, the second thing we do is this. And I think this is bigger these days than ever. We refuse to be a church that is merely open to the gifts. All right, we, we refuse that one. You see, sometimes I hear that. I hear people say, oh yes, we are, we are open to the gifts. In fact, I had this conversation with a couple of people who were leading a church and they were, this is quite a while ago now, and they were wanting to come into New Frontiers. And so I was asking them about their beliefs and I'd been in their meetings and their meetings seemed ever so quiet and 
and, and not much contribution, not much seemed to be going on. So I was just asking them about that. And, um, and I remember them saying to me, they said, look, and they're quite defensive, they said, look, we are open to the gifts of the Spirit. And they even said this, look, if someone prophesies or speaks in a tongue, yes, we even allow that. And I remember at the time, and maybe you'd call it righteous anger, I don't know, but I remember saying to them, you're merely open to the, to the Spirit. Look, are you telling me you're merely open to the things of God? Are you open to the teaching of the Bible? Are you, are you just open to having love for each other? Are you open to being holy? Are you just open to glorifying God? And I remember saying, look, you're not just open to these things, you're passionate for them, aren't you? You're passionate for them. Then how can you merely be open to the Spirit? Paul doesn't say, be open to the gifts, does he? He says, eagerly desire them. It's very strong. It's, it's pursue them. It's be passionate for them. And what that means is that our gatherings, whether it's in small groups or prayer meetings or Sunday morning meetings or groups out on the street, we're looking for, we're encouraging the gifts of the Holy Spirit, aren't we? Because as Paul says to the Corinthians, the gifts of the Spirit are a manifestation of the Spirit. They are an expression of the presence of God. And can I urge you, wherever you are in this, maybe you step out much in the prophetic or in healing or tongues, or maybe you don't step out at all. Can I urge you, wherever you are, to press in for more because the presence of God in his church is at stake. We want to press on to all that he has for us. And can I just say, and this might surprise you, I think we have to fight for this again. I really think we have to contend for it. I can remember the first church I ever pastored back in 1987-88, uh, 25 years old or whatever old I was at the time. And I remember the first church, every Sunday was such a battle because half of the congregation were anti the Spirit, anti any manifestation of the Spirit, and the other half were four. And I still remember Sunday after Sunday out there singing out in tongues on my own, bellowing out in tongues, knowing that just behind me half the congregation was going like this, and the other half was going, oh, wonderful, please, I'd love to join you. Uh, but there was every Sunday, it was a battle where to contend for it. In fact, in the end, I finally said to the folks, oh, we can't do this anymore. And we actually shut that church and we planted again. And we planted this church. And I remember our first Sunday, there was only about 14 of us, such a little gathering. But it was like heaven on earth because we began to worship and we began to get vision and prophecy. And it was a wonderful sense of the presence of God amongst us. And then God moved us on. Hallelujah. We have to contend for this again. I really feel that. I think it's really important. I think that's the fight. My fear is this, is that we will become a people of polish more than a people of presence. A people of polish more than people of presence. And yet it's his presence that will distinguish us and draw people to God. And look, I understand we need to do things as well as we can on a Sunday, and especially if more visitors are coming along, and, but never at the expense of the Spirit. And I think sometimes churches can lose their way. Certainly some churches I walk into, you know, they treat the, the Spirit like the embarrassing uncle. Uh, do you know what I mean by that? You know the embarrassing uncle? The old uncle you keep upstairs because you don't want him to come down and say anything inappropriate in public. 
You know, the, the, the one who fills all the jokes at the, the, at the wrong time. Uh, and we can treat the spirit like the embarrassing uncle. Oh, no, we mustn't have the spirit here. Let's just keep him for, you know, away days in Alpha or, you know, and maybe the prayer meeting in the evening. And that would be a mistake. No, 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 no. The presence of God is what distinguishes us. So, folks, let's not be content to be merely open to the Spirit. Let's overtly seek Him with all our hearts because that is who we are. We are the temple, the house of God. We have an amazing calling as the church. We're not living in the years between the Old and the New Testaments when God wasn't speaking or was absent, are we? We're living in days when God's presence has returned. In the last days I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh and your sons and daughters will prophesy and your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Even upon my servants, both women and men, I will pour out my Spirit in those days and they will prophesy. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the days we're living in. And the local church has been created to house that wonderful presence. So let's press in. Let's pray for more on our worship times, on our gatherings, on our communities, on our every initiative into our communities, onto our offices, wherever we may be. And let's step out in ways that we've never done. My favourite verse these days, and I keep coming back to it if you can see it, Isaiah 60. And I would want to shout it over us almost, which is, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. That's our verse. It's for the New Testament church. And that is for us. Hallelujah. So can I just ask you, are you, are you up for this? <laughs> I guess that's what I'm saying this morning. Are you, are you up for this? This kind of church that is truly seeking and pressing in for more of the Spirit of God which is really a church that's simply seeking to be more biblical. That's all. Let's give ourselves again to this vision as a local church. Let's eagerly desire, let's pray, and let's contend again. Shall we? Let's do that as a people. Can we please stand? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Father, thank you so much for the days that we are in. Father, when things around us seem to be so uh, futile or purposeless, yet, Father, you have broken into our lives and we are your children in days like today. Lord, we are here on the other side of the Old Testament. We are in the New Covenant. And we thank you so much, Lord, that our heritage now, our inheritance is to walk as those who know your presence and your power. Father, I thank you that, Lord, you've, you've saved us as a church 
out of emptiness and empty ritual or empty tradition Lord the dust Lord of buildings that have nothing of you in them but Lord you've brought us into a covenant where where we can believe and expect for your presence among us Father I'm so grateful the church has become a place of encounter truly the colony of heaven on earth Father thank you so much for that and Father, we pray that as a people, we would respond to this and that we would begin to pray into this and that we begin to contend and stand strong again. And that we would, Lord, address where we are in it again. And maybe for some of us, God, who've maybe not stepped out for a while, uh, Lord, we want to receive the challenge to step out again. We want to receive the challenge to begin to prophesy. Lord, to be eager and seeking more of your presence amongst us. Because Lord, your church is built to be full of your presence. And we pray then, please make us so. In Jesus' name, make us so, Lord. We eagerly desire the presence of your Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. 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 And just where you're standing right now, can I just ask you, please, just to stand before God and be aware of your calling again as the people of God. We are gathered and created to be full. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Even now, come, Holy Spirit, just rest upon us, please. Rest upon us, Lord, even now. Stir within our hearts again a passion and desire for more of you. And Father, we thank you once again for every touch we've experienced. We're so grateful. We love what you've done. And yet we are so aware that what you've done is simply a foretaste for more. And so we pray for the more. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. I just want to put it out there as a challenge this morning. There are some of you who have been Christians for years. And there have been times in the past when, wow, you were really up for this. And you were pressing in. And it was a different season, a different time. And it was young and new. And you were, you were full of vibrancy and faith. But the years have gone by. And you feel a little bit weary. I believe this, that God would stir you again and see the newness and the wonder of what you've called to be as the church. And I believe that God would say, hey, hey, don't look over your shoulder or don't look around you thinking how weary it has become, but look to me and allow me to refresh you again. Allow me to breathe upon you. Allow me to breathe on you life and excitement and passion for my presence that you once had, but I desire to give you now that's you just before God right now just bring your heart before him and say Lord refresh my soul stir me again passion for a people prepared a people full of the presence a people excited to be with you hallelujah and even as Stuart and Laurel just lead us in that song just as they sing it, can we just use that song as a quick way of response, a way of heart response before them? Can we do that? Thanks, Stuart. <laughs>